Thank you for listening to the Game of Football podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, and today's show is the third in our series on football and political extremism. In the first two, we looked at communism and fascism, and this week we're going to look at how politics continues to affect clubs, both on the right and the left of the political spectrum today. To do that, I'm joined by Alan Hick. Uh, evening, John. And by Paul Chapman. Hi, John. Thanks for calling us both by our full names. I think it adds a more air of decorum and, and respect for you as contributors as well. When I'm tired after work, I get quite florid. So I apologise if I start dropping big words in. All it means is I'm tired. Yeah. Honest honest to God, and I know I say this a lot, never heard that word in my life. Not fluoride. It means you've got a a flowery forehead, Paul. That's what it means. (laughs) It means you're um, free and easy with the words. And um, yeah, for me... (laughs) With the words. Free and easy with the words, he said, (laughs) condescending. It also means being deeply condescending. Um, well, on to the politics of various clubs then. We've talked kind of about how states have intervened and the history of state political intervention. But obviously, clubs have a habit of surviving political movements and uh, moving into the societies as they evolve. A lot of football clubs have been either left with or have adopted political angles. And I think we started the first episode talking about how fascism affected football. And there's certainly still plenty of right-wing, right-leaning clubs knocking around. Um, I think there is a really obvious place to start. I would say is the most high-profile right-wing club anywhere, in my opinion. And that's Lazio, right? I mean, don't you think of right-wing yeah, when you think of Lazio? Think of Paolo Di Canio. I th- yeah, I think that's absolutely yeah. right. The the Roman salute, as, as some people insist on calling it. Um, which is a Nazi salute now, because that's now what it means. In the same way that, you know, swastikas, it's hard to get the history of swastikas before Nazis in. Kind of means that now, doesn't it? So, Are we having Wayne Hennessy in this section, then, if that's the case? No, because uh, th- this <laughs> this podcast is ostensibly for Wayne Hennessy, who was unaware of fascism. Um, and he's just a victim of the British education system, of which Alan is a part. And I want to take this opportunity to ask Alan right now, why have you allowed Wayne Hennessy to exist? <laughs> I'm not, I'm I don't not think it's a laughing matter if I'm not going to comment on this. No, quite right. I'd actually forgotten what you were talking about, and then it came back in in a, in a horrible moment, a horrible memory there, where of him trying to justify his actions. But I don't know. To, to, to come back to to this, I was kind of looking at. Um, the Lazio story and, and then came across uh, James Montague's 1312 among the ultras yesterday and point but he talks about the ultra scene you know p- people do without having to read his book understand the, the notion of what an ultra is and uh, the, the emergence of and, and they, they can be both very right wing and left wing um, tend to be very uh, anti anti-establishment anti-corporationist uh, anti-everything anti virtually almost sort of the point of, of anarchism and he suggests that that kind of emerges um in the 60s which i mean if, if we're talking about politicization of football earlier than that this is where it kind of like merges into fan culture and i suppose where it becomes more you know more encased within within particular clubs themselves so La- the lazio story um it, it, i don't want to be it, it's a little bit we're, we're in danger of being a tiny bit lazy um in the sense that yes lazio is the club that um it is what we what we think of probably most most commonly when we think of kind of right wing football clubs. But I, I think um, in the article I was reading by a guy called Jack Bevel who wrote for the World Football Index, um, he was talking about uh, he was talking about Lazio as one of a number of clubs that he was giving as a as a kind of case study. And there was a reply that was quite interesting at the bottom from an, an, an Italian guy who seemed pretty measured that. Um, that a number of clubs across Italy have a, a, a real problem with um, with right wing um, fascist elements within the support. There, there, there is there are some clubs like AS Livorno and uh, a few others who have kind of slightly more left wing um, associations. And, and and also within within some of those clubs, it's not like the, the every, every single person here is some sort of like right wing Nazi. Um, but the, the the connotations that go with some of these clubs are there for a reason and um and in the case of Lazio there, there is kind of some quite um quite horrifying kind of incidents that, that that prove that which are probably worth talking about so 
So should we talk a little bit about the irreducibili, um, if I'm saying that right? Oh, I'm glad so, you went with the pronunciation first. So these are the um, group of ultras that form in the mid-80s, is that right? 87, apparently, um, is where they kind of first appear in a sort of match between Lazio and Padova. I suppose they probably kind of existed, uh, as you say, before that point. But this is where they kind of get first known, as far as I'm aware. But um, yeah, they're, they're, they're right wing kind of ultra group who uh, and, and I suppose the thing about them that makes them so scary is their coordination the choreography of what they're doing um the the way the way they conduct some of their their in stadium and outside of stadium kind of actions are uh you know deliberate you know in, in a lot of cases planned and in some cases pretty diabolical really um they're, they're, they're obviously positioned against Roma in a lot of instances um uh, and what, one of the comments that this this uh, Italian chap was kind of saying against uh, the sort of Lazio thing is that there, there's a right wing element within Roma as well. Um, but quite typically, the, the Lazio fans <laughs> tend to have a go at Roma as being a kind of a, a pro Jewish um, uh, kind of football club with that with that with that um, with that background and the anti kind of Semitic rhetoric and prejudice that comes through and uh, certainly in the sort of like the 1990s, early 2000s, but even, th- even into some of the modern day, there's, um, there's, some, there's some nasty kind of um, incidents. Well, I think it's worth saying a couple of the highest profile incidents. There's a game against Roma in 98 where there's a banner unfurled in the stadium um, by these Lazio fans. And um, it's horrific like, and it's upsetting and this is close as we've ever got to giving a trigger warning, I think, on this podcast. But I think it's worth saying to understand it. Um, the banner read, Auschwitz is your country, the ovens are your house. And kind of more recently in this century, um, there's been images of Anne Frank in a Roma shirt. It's pretty... I mean, Lazio is... Lazio are interesting because I think as we talk about different right-wing and left-wing clubs we'll often find out that there's some reflection of modern society and that idea of ultras starting in the 60s and everything is very interesting. Where's the line between fan culture? But Lazio fans like this are drawing a very direct line back to fascist Italy and to Mussolini and that this is claiming that this is Mussolini's club, which is really interesting because Mussolini attempted to make Roma and Lazio merge to form one club to compete with the teams in Turin and Milan who were dominating football at that point and kind of back when we were talking about fascism Alan you asked the question of why does Italy seem so much more affected by fascism um, and I think that's really really interesting because it does seem while some countries you'll find that you've got if there's two clubs in the same city one's left one's right one's the privileged one's the working class that seems quite a common dynamic in Italy, it seems overwhelmingly that the problem that you have is most clubs are right wing in orientation. You have to kind of search around for anything that's left wing. And that's Lazio are perhaps the sort of the big bad guys of that. But, you know, Inter, Juve, all those clubs have got right wing elements in their support. And it's kind of, kind of just considered normal. And I wonder if it's tied up with that nationalism that football in Italy started at the point where you had this ultra-nationalism and this sense... So, you know, the, it's called calcio. The, you don't have, like you have in many other languages, the sort of just adopting the English word and bringing a version of it into your language. Football is not football. It has to be an Italian thing. It has to be calcio. And so many elements of the game, you know, referees aren't... There's no literal translation into referee. It's an Italian word that's used to... And it's really interesting that I wonder if it's that intense nationalist memory that football was brought up in in Italy that's left that imprint on so many fan fans' culture. James Hawcastle, in the very brief bit that I was reading about, talks about not just the sort of nationalist element, but the sort of history of Italy as a kind of uh, a country of city-states that are kind of quite quite divided between each other you know it's a, it's a new nation we talked about this a little bit in the in the rise of fascists and the rise of fascist italy and mussolini that you know in a, in a country where there is i suppose a competing narrative for not not just across the country that you're creating um 
a, a national culture, but also from from place to place as well. And um, like you say, I think it's interesting that there are these these really quite right wing pockets that kind of exist. Um, uh, you know, you'd kind of I feel like you'd associate that with sort of one club or two clubs in a lot of other countries, whereas in Italy, there seems to be a much wider kind of spread of it. But I mean, to, 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 if you're talking about how, how it infiltrates wider Italian society, I mean, the way that the uh, the example of the uh, the Anne Frank um, depiction that you talked about uh, and the, the comments that went alongside that, which were Roma fans and Jews in the Stadio Olimpico, um, the, the club received a, a lower fine than uh, if you remember a season or so ago when Huddersfield put um, a Paddy Power uh, kind of like logo on their kit. They, they got a £50,000 fine for that. Roma got a lower fine for the Anne Frank comments. So, you know, the, the yeah, idea... feels the same in like UEFA as well though, isn't it? If you compare UEFA's fines for racism, it's a joke compared to other stuff. Yeah, completely. Um, the, the the inability to kind of act on these things is is it's disgraceful, isn't it? I mean, there's there's no other way. There's no other word for it. It betrays um, the priorities of those organisations. I'd say in that. I mean, this is slightly tangential, but I'd say that what you're showing it's like English law. English law punishes you for financial indiscretions more than anything else historically in terms of what you'd be that's what the principle of the law was set up to do is to protect property and your financial interests. UEFA, the FA, the Italian organizations, they want to protect what they've got. So they'll fine you more for having a name on a shirt because it affects income. They'll fine you less for racism because they see it as affecting their game less when in fact it's more of a <laughs> it's more of a problem than uh, than any commercial issues because you lose the commercial value of the game. I think there's there's another element to the Lazio story and a couple of the other stories of, of right, right wing and left wing football clubs, which is that they quite often seem to um, uh, mold themselves around a key individual of sorts. Um, Mussolini is the kind of like sort of seen as the father figure. And as you say, and um, they, they, so they link themselves back to that. And in, uh, in just just in 2019, the uh, a day before Italy celebrates its liberation day, the Lazio fans performed kind of Nazi salutes um, and proudly displayed a banner of, of Mussolini. Um, and the banner was hanged in um, Milan's Piazzale Loreto, which is the square in which Mussolini's body is found, um, at least after his, after his execution in 1945. Um, so, so the links are there and they're, and, they're, and they're very apparent. But I mean, they're also not just anti-Semitic in their, in their kind of protests. They... Um, they endorsed um, Zelko Raznatovic, which I'm going to do a very bad attempt of, who was a kind of indicted Serbian war criminal. Um, uh, Arkan had kind of like, through his paramilitary group known as the Tigers, had advocated a kind of ethnic cleansing program. And the Lazio fans had sort of endorsed his, uh, his actions with a honour the Tiger um, Arkan in their kind of, in their sort of pro-positive kind of, uh, sort of propaganda almost that they, that they were putting forward but a, a lot of this came from a from a bloke called Fabrizio Piscitelli who's kind of known as the the diabolic um who was a kind of the early founder I suppose of the uh, of the irreducibility um of which I'm, I'm butchering the pronunciation I just admire the way you've gone for every single pronunciation <laughs> yeah. straight off the bat Wait, yeah, no yes. pausing just straight in there far far better than I would have done um Whenever... I would have taken the piss had I thought that you got them wrong. So my silence speaks volumes. Um, well, th thanks very much. I, I, I think I'm probably doing a disastrous job of it, but you may as well give it a go. I say, um, uh, Pisatelli anyway was uh, he was interviewed by Montague, and he basically his his reply to to what they're like was that he said, "We are a bunch of fucking bastards," basically, um, and and, that, and that's almost his motto. There's a sort of motto of kind of like anarchist sort of chaos almost uh, it's almost like that it was almost their business to kind of to create havoc to some degree um and his kind of like his, his attempt to kind of create the irreducibility was about it was about creating a brand and a, and a, and a loyalty as, as well as um a kind of a, i suppose a belonging and a, and, a, and a fight against whatever they perceived to be mainstream thought so they you know they created their messaging they promoted the 
their, their views on scarves and stickers and badges. You know, fa fascist kind of paraphernalia was, was commonplace uh, amongst them. But there was also a, a hidden kind of link sometimes to um, the Kimura kind of crime syndicate and, uh, and some aspects of, of those uh, those kind of underworld things, which kind of comes up in a, in, in, in a few other clubs as well, um, like Marseille, who we, we might talk a little bit about perhaps later. But um, Pisatelli is no, long, no longer with us. He was assassinated in 2019, um, and the irreducibility was kind of disbanded after that point. But... The, the connections with um, the kind of far-right beliefs still remain. And uh, you, you were talking a little bit earlier, um, Paul, about, you know, the, the Decanio stuff and uh, how he's kind of seen, um, in, you know, as a kind of, as the player who kind of represents a, a lot of kind of Lazio's sort of belief system yeah. in some ways, at, le at least at least in English eyes, because he's come yeah. over here and he's, exactly, yeah. you know, he's played for us. But yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, I I think that I think that covers a lot of what Lazio stands for, uh, or at least a lot of what some aspects of of, of its fan base stands for. I mean, it it, it did. Uh, this may be a question for later, for actually later on. But it did kind of make me think. You know, a lot of us come to our clubs with little preconception of what they are beyond the football team. When you know, when you start supporting them at the age of four or five or six or whatever you whenever your dad tells you you're supporting this team, um, there's, there's an element to which we're protective of that. And I kind of, I wonder where I would stand if I kind of, knowing what who I am now and want to, want to think of myself as, whether I could continue to be a Lazio fan, knowing some of those things were going on. Well, you are an Arsenal fan, huh? Yeah, that is true, but my point being that they don't quite have the same. Although actually, there was some, there's some, there's some criticism of Arsenal at the moment for that for their support of the visit Rwanda stuff, given what's going on there. So, I mean, there's smaller scale things in in, in every club of, uh, in that respect. But I, I do wonder where there's a if there if there is a kind of a line that a club crosses where you say. Do you know what? No, no more. I think that's I think the equivalent that. here. Maybe I'm wrong. Is that, as you said before, being a, a Millwall fan, not necessarily on that level, but the kind of reputation that precedes them. If you're if you're from South East London, and I mean, I think they were my local team for a while when I lived in Blackheath. But uh, yeah, the connotations that go along with it. And 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 if you're in a stadium and you hear stuff going on, what do you? You're powerless, aren't you? Really. But it's too, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? That do these perceptions of what a club is, like you talk about your parents introduce you or whoever it is, usually it's a family member who's going to introduce you to a team because it's their team. That's that's kind of how football tends to work, I think, or at least has traditionally. And I wonder if that cycle perpetuates it. If you're, you know, if the family member, your mum or your dad who introduced you to a team is so into that that you're more likely to get swept up in it because it's just part of the experience. I wonder if globalization now is going to have an effect on that. Because I often notice when you see, um, so it's, for me, it's the North American experience that highlights this, that you'll see people really getting into watching football and they pick a team because of course they pick a team because there's no direct interest or yeah, there's a very tangential interest. And it seems bizarre to me, the teams that people will select to support and I often feel really conflicted about that because it's like, well, you don't understand what that team really means to the community it grew up in. But maybe one of the benefits of that is that as football becomes more global, you're more likely to have people bring different views and diversify the base of that support. Even if it's going to take a long, long time, the fact that you haven't got the same traditional cycle of same thinking that kind of just becomes self-perpetuating maybe that gets diluted over time by globalisation, perhaps? Oh, that's a good point. I can't see that happening in Italy. No? I mean, I, th I think there's certainly some truth to that. The, the, I mean, if, if you take just English English clubs and some, some of the associations, I, I would say that the kind of the links to kind of some of the far right and the far left and the hooliganism of the 70s and the 80s is considerably less than it, than it once was. And whether that's to do with globalisation, I'm not so sure, but... Um, there's, there's been a reduction, I would say, of those things. I, I would say that Italy are, are, are some way behind that, though. 
Yeah, and I think Italy kind of there's an interesting example just comparing Livorno, who you talked about as being one of the few rare left wing clubs. Livorno a left wing effectively because the Italian Communist Party was headquartered in Livorno, a relative a place where that kind of thinking was very much welcomed and you know, the fact that AS Livorno have got um you know the hammer and sickle on there and kind of uh, stands often is is a product of the fact that that is the same process of tying you in with the local politics and the local traditions. Um, it doesn't mean that they are better or worse than the people who are supporting Lazio for those same cyclical reasons. It's just a different thing that originates it. Yeah, I, well, the interesting thing with Livorno, I think that, I mean, in, in some ways you'd think that this would have affected some of those other kind of like right wing clubs. You know, Livorno is a kind of going back a long period of time is a, is a port city uh, in the, you know, going, going back to the sort of the Medici period, you know, the 14, 1500s. Um, it was a time where uh, Italy was becoming rich and powerful. Um, it had a huge trade um, through, through that ruling, ruling family. And because of that, uh, new groups of people from Jews to Turks to African Moors to Persians kind of migrated into the area and it's always been a kind of quite highly multi- multicultural and kind of cosmopolitan city for that reason um, and I, I think that's just an interesting kind of just slight difference that perhaps the other the other places don't didn't quite have during that time or if they were re- reacting against it but um, maybe like you know, Marseille they, in France as well I think Marseille is the uh, is the other one that kind of really strikes you as as impacted on its kind of uh, its sort of social um, its social history and its position on the Mediterranean as a as like a key port in the south of France. Um, they both kind of they both kind of have those things. But I mean, in some ways, I think I think we we sometimes get in danger of thinking that the right wing clubs tend to be the sort of uh, the the more associated with kind of uh, acts of kind of violence and, and those sorts of things which i think generally speaking you'll, you'll find that they are but um uh, you know livorno have a couple of instances of uh, of clashes with uh, with milan fans uh, at the time when berlusconi was owning them they've interrupted um you know silences of particular you know of certain political figures within within Serie A games uh, they, they quite controversially celebrate joseph stalin's birthday every year so you know this is didn't not, they boo cut. the um, minute silence for an Italian soldier that was killed in Afghanistan? Ah, uh, that was it. Yeah, um, I was trying to remember who it was, and um, I mean, so you know, by by comparison, that is not the same as, as some of the Lazio kind of instances that you that you've seen previously. But they're not completely devoid of um, uh, of, of over of over kind of stating their political claims and, and, and supporting people who equally have uh, you know dark dark histories as previous podcasts and history will tell you uh about oh, you know, that's a very important su- point su- surprisingly you can find out a little bit more about Mussolini and stalin from other places than our previous podcast but mm. um but i know. think if you look at say the example of marseille similar kind of things could be leveled about the sort of the extremism of the feeling amongst what i suppose you would call marseille ultras but I think, you know, when you look at uh, what happened at the Euros in France, particularly in Marseille, when you had the sort of fan violence that was that was around that tournament, I do think there's an interesting conversation to be had about how much that focus and around it happening in Marseille was because it was such a cosmopolitan country, but a city, but also because you had that history of activism. It was it was a, a bit of a tinderbox, perhaps. We we travelled around France for the Euro 2016 and Marseille had such a different feeling than any other place we went. Um, the feeling that it could kick off at any point, and I didn't go and watch England at any point, but it just it was a weird, a weird feeling. I liked it. I, I quite like Marseille as a, as a place, but yeah, it was. Very... People have always described Marseille like that, even you know outside of kind of competitions, a bit like a sort of a Naples, quite kind of gritty, yeah. interesting interesting kind of culture but you're not ever completely sure that you could you know walk in certain parts of it and feel completely safe um that that kind of element but marseille was i i have to say i i I read a uh philip o'clair article on marseille a a while back and uh it was really fascinating i haven't got all of the details of it 
um, to hand today. It's, it's something that I think is worth kind of going back into. But I mean, it's history. I mean, in, in some ways, I feel like it, it's one of the few clubs that sort of spans the left and right at different times. And it's kind of connection to uh, its connections to kind of like politics, like the, 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 the fan, the fan groupings there have a huge kind of like power and connection to people in Marseille city hall and um, things, things like ticket, ticket sales have gone through um, kind of like the, the, the fan, the fan grouping and um, they've got an awful amount of power to to influence things in, in a different way to i think a lot of a, a yeah lot of places i think it's oddly similar to the real or real uh to uh boca juniors um and the oh my god what's the other club called why is my brain stopped i was going to say boca juniors but when i when i went sorry to interrupt and speak about myself again they, th- there's a lot of um it's supposed to be for the fact like, Fans are supposed to easily get tickets, right? It doesn't work like that at yeah. all. It's all about it's quite corrupt and it's a racket, isn't it? A sort of Boca yeah. and River. How can I forget the name of River Plate? It's embarrassing, but the same setup with Marseille that fans. I save you there, though. Jason. Oh, you big time saved me. Well, I couldn't think of the name of River Plate, which is insane. Yeah. But this is less political, and it's more the moving in of almost what's akin to organized crime, for the fact that yeah. there's a, a whole set of ultras hooligans criminals however you want to put it whose connections to the club effectively are a business that they can make money from yeah um, exactly you know it's sort of you know the marseille the kind of boca that whole argentina thing they always want to make money off the organization that they're a part of right <laughs> completely no reaction from alan whatsoever <laughs> i was i was I'd, I'd kind of given given over a little bit of time for you two to just to, to talk about things for a second there. I, I did listen back to, to, to the, the podcast from the other day, and then there was a bit that um, that you talked about. I think you were going into East Germany, John, and I just remember not listening to a word. <laughs> I, I went back in and, and, and heard it again. I was just like, God, that is really fascinating. I, Completely didn't didn't even respond to that remotely at the time. Um, I, I clocked out by that point. I think it, it was it was almost an hour in. So apologies if I if I. So much. Can I just? Something. I feel this is an opportune time to let you know that I listen and hang on every word that I to <laughs> throughout every podcast, and I think that's quite disrespectful. You know what, Paul? It marks you out as a person because I get a sense that when we talk, you're really listening, but when I speak with Alan, he's just waiting for his turn to talk. Yeah. Yeah. I was really? isn't, that, isn't that what we, isn't that what we all do? No, um, that's just that. you. I sort of s- desperately sit there. I'm just looking Listen, at my screen and going, "I know this is my turn." There's no, it's a complete non sequitur, but I'm going to say it anyway. He wasn't brought up properly, was he, eh, JC? These no, southerners, <laughs> not with proper northern values. Not waiting to speak. I do apologise. Yeah. Now we know why Wayne Hennessy's got no manners and he does all that. Right. <laughs> all goes back to him. Oh, God. No We're trying to give this sense that there's a huge um, amount of nuance among um, how people support their clubs and that perhaps it's not as simple as just left and right. But I'd like to throw a, well, either a spanner in the works or an exception that proves the rule and talk about nobody's favourite club, Zenit St. Petersburg. I, I, don't think, I don't think I was quite aware of the extremism of their fan group until quite relatively recently. Um yeah. But I think it's important to say, I imagine everyone listening can tell that the two out of the three people here that have done a lot more research than the other one. And I'll let you work out for yourselves if you haven't. However, I'm not overly familiar with Zenit's right-wing uh, fan base. So I'm, a, I'm all ears for this one. Uh, the only thing I can remember kind of is that um, banner for Peter Odenwingi, but, but I think he played for like Locomotive Moscow or someone like that, didn't he? There's there's a few that kind of go into kind of like quite like they're they're more I think opaquely racist towards kind of um, pe- people people of, of black backgrounds and African backgrounds than say Lazio although it, it, Lazio certainly not um, <laughs> in, innocent of that accusation either but um, I mean the, the, so the, the main supporters group are, are called the Landskrona if I'm again saying that right. Um, they have seamlessly moving between Italian and Russian pronunciations with exactly the same accent, and I appreciate who'd, that who'd confidence. Have, who'd have thought? Um, but they 
expressed their belief um, that things like uh, homosexuality should be completely forbidden. It's unworthy of our great city, they talk about, um, in referring to St. Petersburg. They, again, are, have, a, have an important kind of like leader of their fan group, a guy called Alexei Rumyantsev, uh, who doubled sort of like goes goes further with this with this approach but it, it, within their manifesto i mean at least they attempt to try and uh downplay the the reality of what they're of what they're talking about he was he was asked about um you know was, was there a danger of this and he said racism no I, I was just taught in school blacks should live in africa indians are there any left in america chinese in asia uh, and then they can all visit each other but only to visit not to stay and bring their habits and laws with them i want the outskirts of the city to be to be st petersburg not baghdad nigeria or whatever else Jeez. so i mean yeah, there's there's no holding back there is there it's just so there, there was a zenit banner um again the banner's a, a, a good unadulterated way to see what you think um, there's no black in the zenit colors was the uh was the zenit banner that i'm uh, thinking of quite recently uh, when they yeah. demanded that uh, the club sign no players who weren't white and preferably were Russian. No players who were black, you mean? No players who were black, sorry. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't remember the odd stuff, but Nabi Keita was uh, definitely targeted by um by the Zenit by the Zenit fans um when he was uh was he playing uh, playing for Leipzig at the time I think. Um uh, and fans were chanting you know again just horrendous things such as we killed the negro um which again they got a fifty thousand euro fine from uh from uefa and forced to play behind closed doors for their next qualifier um you know just astonishing uh that, that such a thing can kind of could come through and and then and there's been other kind of um, reactions to the signing of uh, of black players like uh, malcolm from barcelona and uh, and those and, and those kind of things so you know uh this is a this is a club that's got a, a fiercely kind of i would say violent and quite and quite nasty uh following from a handful uh, a minority of supporters but a minority that is can be quite scary and quite dangerous but a minority again you're interesting because this is st petersburg so there's an interesting set of contradictions it's former Soviet Russia, so you would think that there would be some memory of that communist influence. That doesn't necessarily seem to be part of this. St. Petersburg is the sort of capital of arts and culture in Russia as well, which you wouldn't associate with being a particularly violent um, kind of firmament in the city. However, what they seem to be overwhelmingly is St. Petersburg is a very nationalist place, and it seems less about fascism or communism and more about a very, very strong sense of nationalism that perhaps is a more modern phenomenon, sort of in the absence of the kind of Soviet setup and the, the control of that, that you find identity by defining yourself as fiercely, fiercely Russian. And however odd it is to define it in the way that they have, it's less about historic politics and more maybe about kind of Russia as is today and the way it sort of projects itself as a regional power as fiercely and uniquely nationalistic. I think when you've got a state that has the very just to put it to put it kind of like kindly has uh, waived kind of certain human rights issues um, they're kind of very anti uh, anti homosexuality kind of uh, yeah. agenda that they've got going on um, it's unsurprising that uh, certain kind of populist uh, groupings arise and then get get expressed in a in, in a football club where you can kind of get away with that behaviour more because you're hidden by the crowd, you're hidden within the Absolutely. mob to, to some degree. Um, I was gonna say, sorry, I, I was going to say a simplistic view is look at their president or prime minister or however it is. And uh, so it... That kind of behavior is probably accepted, I imagine, or turned a blind eye to. I mean, if you look at like, if you're talking about homosexuality in Russia, I know that there's there's a lot written on Chechnya and what goes on there at the moment with regards to that, lots of public beatings and killings and stuff like that. So, and Putin isn't in control of that, but he's 
I'm going off on a tangent here, aren't I? No, it's really but, uh, interesting. Yeah, but it's, it's relevant, though. Yeah, and it's that nationalism that allows them to, you know, annex the Crimea well, yeah, and do the whole thing into, yeah, you know, Putin's power might be, you know, there are all the rumours that are going around at the moment that Putin might have Parkinson's. Um, it seems like okay. it would be his health is the only thing that can kind of loosen any kind of grip on power that he has as he tries to make himself uh, effectively president for life at the minute. And even this scandal about who owns this mega palace that they found that seems clearly to be Putin, but he's found a couple of stooges to say it's his. It seems very hard to knock Putin off his perch. And yeah, it's... Um, I, know, I haven't read the Parkinson's thing. It's I, it's one of those classic things that could, I mean, just as easily be anti-Russian um, kind of propaganda to, to kind of undermine that. But it does seem to be something that's been suggested that perhaps he's he's not particularly well. But um, yeah, I think that. How old is he? Well, depends where you could put him on that horse. You'd think he was about yeah mid thirties. I reckon. <laughs> I reckon he's. Early fifties. I bet he's in the sixties. Older than that. Yeah. Hmm. I think he must be older than that. Someone Google it. Look. Bloody hell, he's sixty-eight. Yeah. He's sixty-eight. Can't believe yeah. that. Parkinson's age. Anyway. Um, <laughs> the... Parkinson's, I saw. Uh... Sorry for any listeners who <laughs> have been affected by Parkinson's or are sixty-eight. Yeah, I know. That's a terrible comment, isn't it? That's it. So from Russia, I think um, as we kind of leave Russia as a place difficult to find a cementedly um, contrast to uh, to Zenit, um, perhaps of a country that was communist. Obviously, there's the relics of communism, but as we say, they seem to have turned to nationalism as much as anything. Um, another potent example of a fiercely right-wing club. Uh, we're going to turn to Israel now and uh, better Jerusalem. Again. I'm all in yeah. on this one. Well, I'm going to start off I mean, by talking... I, for my first awareness of Retar came through watching a film. Uh, there was a 2016 film called Forever Pure, which was a kind of documentary going back, I think, four or five years before its release about the club. It's a great place to go after this, but let's let's break down some of the better history. Um. So from, from from what I've kind of read about them, because I like like I like you, John. Um, probably this is this is a club that I'm sort of newest to in terms of its background. But a club that, I mean, if, if we're talking about a club being the product of its um, of its temporal and geographical kind of location, it this this one is undoubtedly going to be fueled by the disputes of uh, of the Middle East region and uh, and the. the the fight for the Holy Land and, and that sort of thing. So it's founded in Jerusalem in 1936. It has strongly Zionist um, kind of backings, uh, kind of intentions and in supporting the Israeli state and right-wing politicians like um, like Netanyahu. Um, and, you know, they're, 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 they're not just supporters of a football club. They're actively involved in, a, you know, a bloody conflict that exists for... Uh, kind of sovereignty of the state of Israel and, and the fight between Israel and Palestine. So um, it's it's hard to kind of divorce it from that, but it's getting expressed through an ultra group that are known as La Familia. Um, I don't think that was quite as hard to pronounce, thankfully, but they've got an, an ideology that... that... Exactly. I mean, they, they've got an ideology which is inescapably pretty much identical to, to the state in a lot of ways. Um, I don't think the state would be as open to stating some of the things that that group had done, but in their um, desire to kind of uh, have have kind of control of Israeli um, of Israel, they've uh, I suppose they've kind of they embody some of those things. But uh, undoubtedly, La Familia would go beyond what would be kind of deemed acceptable. I'm sure there would be plenty of members of the of Israel who would be shocked by some of the things that have been put forward but chants in the stadium are undoubtedly anti-Muslim in a lot of their uh, in a lot of what they include from things like death to Arabs to Muhammad is a homosexual so repeats of kind of uh, anti, um, sorry homophobic kind of stuff um, and, and lots of kind of other other, other 
uh, angst at kind of key player signings. So there were two, you mentioned Chechnya a moment ago, Paul, two Chechen players, um, Zor Sadaev and um, Jibril Kadev, um, who were signed in 2012. Um, and they were <laughs> sharp, oh, John. Yeah. <laughs> John's uh, like clapping in the background <laughs> at my attempt there. Um, but, you know, one of them scored for the team and, and the supporters kind of still exited the stadium in protest at, uh, at one of their own players. Literally when he scored, there was a walkout in the stadium. And in response to that as well... Why was that, sorry? Because he was a Muslim. Uh, they're, they're, on, they're the only club in um, the Israeli top flight who haven't signed a... Um, Muslim player so um, whether they're a Palestinian um, whether they're an um, uh, Israeli Arab I mean, there's quite a lot of sensitivity about how you refer to uh, people who are Muslims who are uh, citizens of the of the Israeli state of which about 20% of the population of Israel are Arabs and are Muslims um, and yet they're kind of uh, better are the only club who haven't signed so when they sign these two Chechen players who are Muslim granted there's a different ethnicity going on but the religion thing was just a bridge too far and that uh, film that i mentioned earlier um the kind of focus of that was the signing so forever pure the name of the uh, 2016 documentary sort of charts their arrival at the club and how it's an attempt well what's interesting is like they burn the the fans burn the club's administrative office down at the signing of these players it's it's really really shocking the extent to which this is a really right-wing club. It's you know we the three we've mentioned. I think we've mentioned for a particular reason that they seem to have built into their DNA um, over the last what thirty years. In every instance, this increasingly aggressive right-wing anti anything that isn't just sort of heteronormative to their society. I guess. But where there's better Jerusalem as well, I wanted to draw a comparison to Hapoel Tel Aviv because for a lot of people, kind of, there'll be an assumption that that state attitude will be reflected. Because for a great many people, particularly in the West, there's huge problems with the way that kind of Israel behaves um, towards the kind of Muslim communities around them, and an awful lot of uh, conflict and contradiction around who's right given. Israel was attacked, but even the fact that Israel exists. Hapoel are really, really interesting because they... So Hapoel literally means the worker. Uh, They're the most popular and well-supported club in Tel Aviv. They have literally on their badge the hammer and sickle. They play in red. Um, They were owned for over 60 years by by Israel's uh, National Union Centre. So they are a unionist-born and owned club, effectively, um, and have been incredibly the opposite of this. They have been a literal left-wing presence. They were born out of the Labour Zionist movement. They, they subscribed to what at one point was the biggest Zionist movement, which was much more left-leaning than the Zionist movement that has been with Israel since it was founded in the 40s. So there is another version of this Israeli club, which you might not expect to see if you look on a kind of simplistic basis. You know, they do seem to be very open. They have many Muslim, Arab, Palestinian players. They have still been very successful. And they're still very widely supported in Israel's capital city as well. So it's interesting that we talk about the keep coming back to the word firmament but how clubs are a product of those things and it's i think the biggest danger when you're trying to summarize any of this is to assume that any country is just one thing it's very rare that a country is just one thing and as such the football clubs are going to reflect that so i don't know it's sort of um it seems that even in that example of better jerusalem you've got a really contrasting example in hapoel tel aviv as well and I don't know, I think it, it leads us on to perhaps discussing protest clubs a little bit, um, which I don't think Hapoel are, they're a, a club of ideology. But there are quite a lot of clubs that seem to pop up as much in response to what's going on elsewhere as a more deliberate identity. So I'm thinking of San Paoli, um, I'm thinking of um, kind of always more activist clubs, so Standard Liège, um, 
again, though, that's probably a poor example because Standard Liège seemed to be an example of the place. So Liège being quite a kind of liberal place, which there was a general strike in Belgium in the early 60s. Liège was a big centre for it. Um, they accused Leopold III of collaborating with the Nazis. So perhaps Liège is a bad example. But, you know, we've kind of Deportivo, uh, La Coruña, um, Rio Valcano, Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo's support and growth seems almost to be a literal response to people just being sick of the hooliganism of Germany in the 80s. And it's there's also that choice that we talked about earlier. You know, people are making a choice about how they shape the way clubs are perceived. And Sao Paulo have really kind of endorse that they've they've banned displays of right-wing um materials in the stadium and they've they've switched so far that they're considered very very left-wing they were recently and controversially put on a list of um organizations that needed to be monitored for their their left-wing views that that is that, that was the one club that i had kind of like gone in gone into taking a few notes on and um i mean you're right they they emerged as part of what was called the cult phenomenon in the sort of 1980s and they were uh, you know, they had they sort of utilised the uh, what's called the Reaper Barn areas, like a, a big nightlife kind of district, yeah, quite sort of run down working, yeah, working class uh, kind of red light district as well. Um, so it had a kind of like an emerging fan base that tended to be young, uh, quite often socially active students, so, as you say, John verging into anarchists um, in, in its most uh, leftist sort of sense, but a lot of them kind of like probably sort of sort of hang around hippies if you like from the sort of 60s and 70s and you know it's a it's a, it's a small club but it, it it gathered a good deal of momentum and they'd you know they only averaged 1200 fans in the 1980s but by the 1990s were selling out um their 20,000 seater um stadium and uh and, and became quite popular they you know they're, they're not having the same success that they once did but they kind of they seemed there, there seemed to be at least a, a principle behind what they were doing. They didn't, they didn't, as a club, uh, sort of seek to sell out when they, as their popularity grew. Their, their supporters held on to some of those kind of more um, kind of socialist instincts, I suppose. So they, they adopted an iconic kind of skull and crossbones as their their club emblem, yeah. uh, and they uh, they became the first German team to ban right wing nationalist activities in its stadium. Uh, and for for those time when a lot of these clubs. We're, we're exhibiting the opposite and for that left-wing symbolism by the way is one of the reasons that they were put on a uk anti-terror list um san Paoli itself was because they're pirates a... yes well yeah if you if you think about i think the average football fan if you think about a team that's left-wing the majority going to say san Paoli, even though it's not in the uk maybe they'll say forest green just for their outlook on particularly on climate change and things like that but left wing as a whole I think St Pauli would be number certainly in the top three that people would be saying I think it's weird here because I think the answer would have changed quite a lot that it's sort of certainly in the 20th century because football was so working class in this country um, maybe the biggest example of that was sort of as a left wing club would probably be Liverpool in the 80s um, the kind of Liverpool the managed decline Celtic of Celtic in Scotland as yeah well. well it's that kind of the product of that kind of managed decline from the Thatcher years of effectively saying look why invest in this place it's just let's let it fall apart um you know my could have mentioned several times I worked in museums and there was such fear about what would happen to the museum collections in Liverpool that they nationalized the museums um just in an attempt to keep it out of the left wingers hands who might sell the collections so when you driven with contradictions, but it's hard to find those examples here because they seem so much more. So you know, the Dulwich thing to me always feels a little artificial, a little contrived and affected, and in a way that it just. Doesn't, Why do you say that, Joseph? It just feels like a. Every time I hear, I've never been, so I completely admit that I, I may I've go. Been once. I may go once. and love it. Um, champagne socialists yeah effectively it's it's that vibe that it's that champagne socialism it. and ha- this doesn't feel real but then again I've never that. been yeah. so what kind of p- comment yeah. am I making um, I think we, we, we also went do, to their they do grey hot dogs <laughs> like really I really also went to their uh, they've got a twin club in Germany called 
Altora or something like that. Um, Altona. And they're, they're, yeah, they twin with, they're like a fifth division club in Germany. They twin with Dulwich Hamlet. And like we went over there and it was. It would, explain, it would explain the hot dogs. There's uh, a lot of meat. If um, anyone wants to change my mind and offer the uh, three of us the opportunity for an expenses paid trip to either, uh, post COVID jabs, I'll be very happy to do that. But maybe we're I'm on the official Altona website in 2019 because we were all dressed as wrestlers. <laughs> yeah, so. That is very. And, and they nice. were great. They put us on the halfway line and made us like the photographer picked us out from the crowd and. We played on the pitch and everything. It was amazing. I was stressed. Paul is not using the weed to describe the podcast. He's using it to describe his friends. Alan and I have never, to my knowledge, dressed as wrestlers. No. Really? But if we did, we could really pull it off. Um, What we didn't mention, oddly, was football. And we'll wrap up now, I think, as as time's pressing. But um, I wanted to kind of do that by saying that we'd had a few suggestions of other things that might be interesting to talk about the influence of on clubs. So we had um, an email in from uh, Peter Tate, who suggested that we talk about religion and the way that religion has affected different clubs and formations of football, uh, which is a good point. Uh, and another thing that I think we've not covered is difficult to cover is sort of the effect of hooliganism and the sort of things that underlie hooliganism and how that's born out of the same sort of set of considerations we've talked about today. And the thing we just didn't cover today was the fact that football stadiums have been that safe place to express dissent in so many issues. So, you know, there's all sorts of example from um, Barcelona to Gdansk of examples of um, kind of football stadiums being the safe place to protest against what's happening as well so i think all of those are potential future podcasts and if anybody's uh, who's listened has got any questions or suggestions of follow-ups to this series that we might do uh, you can get in touch in one or two ways you can find us on twitter at the game of footy or you can email us the game of footy at gmail.com but for this week that's everything thank you very much to paul cheers lads and thank you very much to alan cheers john i was going to mention something about Zlat um bit saying that footballers shouldn't get involved in politics and but that's all the time. I mean, there, there's a potential footballers in an extremism, isn't there? Yeah, there is as Somewhere. well. Yeah, there is. You could do that. Which I disagreed with completely, as if you shouldn't make a stand. Because I think he was talking about LeBron James, wasn't was, it? Yeah. Mm. yeah, I think he was. Al- I think it was almost more stupid than that. So it was almost like he was saying you shouldn't have opinions. You should just do. Yeah. Don't Stick be a multi-layered person. Just do the thing that you're doing. Which... Like the amount of influence LeBron James can have in the US when it comes to racial issues is... You kind of hope feel it that Zlatan is sympathetic to some of those views, it sounds like. Well, he, he, he leans back on, oh, I'm, I was Yugoslavian in Sweden, and which, you know, you don't know how you treat it, but you shouldn't, shouldn't. As James pointed out, though, there's a contradiction here, isn't there, between pointing that out several points earlier in his career and now saying you shouldn't have political opinions.